and especially my, my friendship with your pastors, uh, past and in, in the present. Every time I have, a, have the honor of guest preaching here, I do always come away encouraged. I always go back home and tell my wife just how, how, how God is doing an amazing thing uh, here at Hope, and I'm just so inspired going back to my church to continue to pastor there. I, I'm, I'm from Houston Chinese Church. Uh, it's a Chinese heritage church that's located over uh, by the NRG Stadium, so it's uh, uh, right there, kind of in, in the inner loop. We minister to a lot of uh, people in the medical center, the Rice University, uh, UH campus, um, and so that's what I've, what I've been doing there for about 10 years now. Um, I grew up at that church, but uh, it's been uh, God called me to serve there as the English-speaking pastor, um, and it's just, um, you know, coming here, it just really invigorates me to continue on ministry there, so I thank you guys for this opportunity. Now, I understand that as a church, you've experienced a lot of change over this past year. Changes due to the pandemic as to how you worship and and where now you gather to worship. This is my first time being here in this uh, space with you guys. I'm I'm more used to the uh, the Presbyterian Church, and I've been there a few times. So, you know, I know there's a lot of changes for you. Also, changes in terms of leadership and personnel. Changes uh, to the very makeup of your church as people have come and gone, uh, even just in the, in the past uh, year, year or so. And so I, I checked my calendar to see when was the last time I guest preached, and I saw that it was uh, Thanksgiving weekend of 2019. So that's not that long ago. That's just, what, a, a year and a half ago. And just within that short span of time, think about how many changes have taken place. Changes that obviously none of us could have predicted. This past year, I would say for all of us, has been a humbling experience. Because no matter how careful we were, no matter how diligent we were, no matter how well thought out or strategic the plans that we had laid for ourselves, we were all starkly reminded this year how little control we really have over our lives. Our plans can be so easily disrupted, so easily derailed, and that's our experience, isn't it? But that's also what the scriptures tell us in this, uh, this evening's passage. It warns us about the uncertainty of earthly plans. Just think back to the last time I was here, November of 2019. And just think, think of all the plans that you were making in your mind around that time or in the beginning of, of 2020. For me, I, I was making plans For this very summer, I'm actually supposed to be on sabbatical right now. I'm supposed to be with my family Uh, around this time. We would be in the UK. Um, I had a whole sabbatical planned out where we were going to be visiting other Chinese heritage churches, ministering to diaspora Chinese communities uh, internationally, and I wanted to go over to the UK. We're just enjoying that right now. Um, and we're just in Houston, enduring the humidity and the heat, which, you know, I grew up here, so I'm used to it. And, and, and we are caring for a seven-month-old daughter that uh, we did not expect. And in the uh, pandemic period, I, I, have a, I have a 10-year-old daughter, and uh, after 10 years, I mean, we just assumed that that chapter was closed for us. And then within this crazy uh, pandemic period, God blessed us with another child just you know, around the same age as some of the babies you just saw up here. So again, God, God has, has very different plans than we have planned out for ourselves. Like yours, my, my plans were drastically changed. Life turned out drastically different than I expected. 
I would believe that that's a true statement, I think, for every single one of us here, and really, every single person on the planet can literally say that right now, that in this past year, that, that all of us, every single person, has experienced some kind of disruption to our life plans. And just think about how rare that is, right? That to have everyone on the earth, literally every single person, experience the same thing at the same time. So friends, let's not let this providential moment go, go on by and pass us by without us really hearing what God is trying to say to us. And I think he is, through this whole pandemic experience, trying to give us a wake-up call, reminding us that we are not lords of our lives. I think it's easy to think so. The illusion of control is so tempting in a modern world that we, we, we can control the temperature in our homes. We can control the flow of electricity. We can control a two-ton vehicle traveling at 70 miles per hour. And nowadays, we can even control it to control itself. So considering all that we have gained as a civilization, you can see why it's so easy for us to have this illusion of control. We assume we are in control of our lives, but all it really takes is another once in 500 years flood to hit us or for another global pandemic to shake us from that very illusion to remind us of really how little control we do possess over our lives and how we are really at the whim of forces much greater than us. And that's why I think it's the perfect time for us to preach this little text in, in the book of James that, that I think all of us are primed and ready to hear what it has to say. I think there's not a single one of us could, who, who could deny the relevancy of, of this evening's text. No one can say that it doesn't apply to them. So what does it have to say? What is James, what is the Lord saying to us through this text? Well, first, friends, the text is going to tell us what we ought not to say when we are making life plans for ourselves. And secondly, it's going to tell us what we ought to say when we are making those kinds of plans. So those are, those are my two points this evening. Very simple sermon outline. What we ought not to say when making plans, what we ought to say. But suffice it to say, while James is concerned here with what we are saying with our mouths, we're going to see that his deeper concern really is what our words reveal about our hearts and our attitude towards the Lord. So let's start off, and if you can keep your eyes on the text and have, have the Bible in front of you, let's start off by considering what we ought not to say when making life plans. Look with me at verse 13. I'll read that again. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profits. So here James is speaking most likely to the wealthier members of, of, of the church in, in whom he's uh, writing to, spe uh, speaking to those probably in the merchant class, which explains why they would be even making plans to travel and, and, and to trade for their business. James begins in verse 13 uh, with a hypothetical but realistic illustration of a self-confident Christian who speaks of traveling on this particular day to, to that particular location for this amount of time to accomplish this or that. It's really no different than how we talk and how some of us, you would hear Christians saying things like, you know, I'm going to graduate from college 
in, uh, in, in four years. I'm going to finish that graduate program in three, and then I'm going to get a job in this city with that company. Or maybe you might hear someone say, my plan is to get married by this particular age. Or you hear a young couple saying, you know, but in three years, we're going to start a family. We're going to have this many kids and so on. Well, James is going to point out three problems with that kind of speech, that kind of way of talking about our future plans. There's first the assumption of such speech, second, the foolishness of such speech, and third, the sinfulness of such speech. The assumption, the foolishness, and the sinfulness. First, let's consider the assumption behind the way of talking about future plans. When you talk that way, as we see here in verse 13, you're assuming that you have control over your plans, that you have the power to bring them into fruition. You've embraced what we talked about, that illusion of control. And that's the kind of presumption that James is warning about. Now, let's be clear here before we move on. James is not forbidding his readers from making plans for your future. He's not suggesting that, that any form of goal setting or financial planning, planning is, is wrongheaded. In fact, you could turn to various scriptures um, and you could find support there for setting aside savings for the future or for purchasing uh, insurance as a way to mitigate against uh, any kind of unforeseen event. So to plan for the future in these ways is not necessarily a, a, an act of unfaithfulness. It could actually be a very responsible act of stewardship. James's main concern is not of making plans in itself, just as he's not concerned with the particular words that you say, particularly in verse 13. He's concerned really about the foolish illusion of control that is lurking behind those words, behind the making of our plans. So friends, if you happen to find yourself speaking quite like this person in verse 13, then most likely you've assumed, consciously or not, you've assumed that you are in control of your plans, in control of the future. But that leads to the second problem with this way of talking, and James raises that concern in verse 14. It's a concern with the foolishness of such speech. Let me read verse 14 again. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So the point is that such self-confident pronouncements about your future plans is foolish in the way that it overlooks the nature of living life in a fallen world. James highlights, first of all, the uncertainties of life. We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. I really don't think I, I, I need to do much more convincing of that or give you many more illustrations than, again, the very life experience we're all going through with this global pandemic, that life is certainly uncertain. No one could have predicted how this past year would have gone. No one could predict what major life-altering catastrophe is going to come next. Who knows what tomorrow is going to bring? Proverbs 27 verse 1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. What that means is that we shouldn't brag about what we're going to do tomorrow when you don't even know how this day is going to end. Maybe 
with some unexpected joy, maybe with unforeseen sorrow. We don't know. That's the uncertainty of life. Next, James emphasizes not just the uncertainty of life, but the brevity of life. What is your life? You are but a mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. Picture the morning mists. The morning mist and and how quickly it just disappears with the rising of the morning sun. That's how fleeting our life is when compared to the endless span of eternity. In Job 7, verse 7, he describes his life as a breath. Psalm 39, verse 5, affirms the same thing. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Just think about those uh, not-so-common days in Houston where the weather gets cold enough that you can actually see your own breath when, you, when you're outside and you're just talking, you're just breathing as it just kind of passes through the air and quickly just fades away. Such is your life. Picture your life as a, as a single drop in the ocean of eternity, a speck in the infinite reach reaches of the cosmos. It's foolishness to act like we're going to live forever or to presume, to presume that we'll always have more time to pursue our dreams and to fulfill our plans when life is a vapor. It can go like that. And overall, in verse 14, not just the uncertainty or the brevity of life, James is stressing the fragility of life. One day, life as we know it just vanishes. It's just gone. The illusion of control can be quickly shattered by an unexpected illness, a sudden accident, or even the imminent return of Christ Jesus himself. Life is so fragile that it can be cut short in an instant along with all of our unfulfilled plans. In Luke chapter 12, there's this parable that speaks to the uncertainty and brevity and fragility of life. We're introduced to this rich fool who has assumed the illusion of control. He's resting in the assumption that he has ample goods laid up for himself for many years, and so he can just kind of sit back and relax and eat, drink, and be merry. But then the Lord says to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? This fool's big plans were cut short by an untimely death. Don't be like this fool. Don't pronounce your plans with such self-confident certainty. That is, according to Scripture, pure foolishness. You know, it's actually worse than that. It's not just foolishness. It's actually sinfulness. If you look at verses 16 to 17, James exposes the sinfulness of of such speech, of talking this way about your plans. Listen to verse 16. As it is, this is referring back to this kind of speech in verse 13, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So James rightly diagnoses that behind our self-confident pronouncements of our future plans is hiding a prideful self-sufficiency. We're claiming the ability to to control outcomes. We're claiming sovereignty to some extent. We are rejecting the Lord, and we are boasting in our prideful self-sufficiency. 
Now, I know you might be thinking right now, okay, come on, come on, that's, that's a bit harsh there. You know, sure, I, I, I admit that I, I do make a lot of life plans without really consulting the Lord, and, and maybe I, I have spoken with some air of certainty about my plans for the next few months or few years, but I wasn't trying to reject the Lord. I, I, I wasn't suggesting that I don't need Him or that His will for my life doesn't matter. Now, look, I, I, I get it. You didn't set out to reject the Lord or to deny His will. That wasn't your intent. But you have to realize that that's essentially what you're doing when you just go ahead and plow forward with your plans without real consideration of His will. That's the point that I think James is getting at in verse 17. Look at verse 17 again. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now, I know at first glance, you're like, verse 17 kind of seems out of place, right? There's a warning just kind of comes out of nowhere. It doesn't seem to fit with the rest of the text. James here is talking about sins of omission, where you fail to do the right thing. A sin of omission is in contrast to a sin of commission, where you're actively doing the wrong thing. So why is he suddenly talking about sins of omission? Well, since verse 17 begins with the word so, or in some translations, therefore, it's clear that he's not changing the subject. By referencing sins of omission, James is saying that our unintentional, passive dismissal of the Lord in his will in the course of our making of plans is a sinful act. Sure, we may not be actively rejecting God's will, but it is what we know as a sin of omission. It's a sinful act of blasphemy nonetheless. And I know that sounds harsh, but you have to realize that this kind of speech and the prideful self-sufficiency behind it exposes really a kind of functional atheism that has come to really dominate our way of life. We claim to believe in God, we say we need God, but then we go on and live as if we don't. We don't really factor him in or his will into the plans that we're making all the time. So friends, I think we need to examine if this warning is true for us in our lives. You say you're a Christian, but are you functioning as an atheist, at least in this regard when it comes to making plans? When you're setting goals and making plans for your life, is your approach to doing so distinguishable from someone who doesn't even believe in God? Or are you both approaching it with the mindset that as long as you have sensible expectations, you take some good advice into consideration, you work hard, you don't easily quit, then you can just pretty much achieve everything you put your mind to. If that's the mindset, if that's your methodology towards making plans and just realize that's really no different than what worldly wisdom would tell you. I think, I think all of you know what the right thing to do is. You know that as a Christian, your faith in God, your trust in his will has to factor in when you are making decisions, when you're formulating plans. But if you fail to do that, then for you, as a believer, that would be a sin. It's not just a simple oversight. It's not just a failure to say particular words this overall approach to making plans without a consideration of God and his will is really a heart issue. It's revealing a prideful self-sufficiency that we ought to repent of. 
Now, after we repent and freshly receive the grace of forgiveness that God freely offers us through faith in his son, then we ought to reapproach our plans and to figure out what now we ought to say when we go about making plans from now on. And James tells us exactly what we ought to say in verse 15. So look there. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, I want, to, I want us to consider three things here about what we ought to say. First, the addendum to our plans. Second, the attitude towards our plans. And third, the foundation of our plans. The addendum, the attitude, and the foundation. Let's start with the addendum to our plans. The addition that we should include when speaking of our best laid plans. James says you ought to add the phrase, if the Lord wills. So go ahead, make your plans, exercise due diligence, strategize, consult, do whatever it takes to come up with your well-thought-out plans, but in the end, you commit those plans over to the Lord. You roll them into his sovereign hands. And that's what you're implying whenever you say, if the Lord wills. You've determined your will. It's in the form now of whatever plan you have in place. But these words indicate that you have submitted your will under the Lord's will. You have accepted that your plans are subject to change as the Lord carries out his sovereign will in your life. And this is exactly how the apostles would speak as they, as they were making plans. There, there are plenty of examples of their speech when it comes to making plans found in the New Testament. For example, Acts chapter 18, verse 21, the Apostle Paul tells the Ephesians that he plans to return to them. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 19, he says to the Corinthians, he's going to come visit them soon, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And he reemphasizes his travel plans at the end of the letter in chapter 16, verse 7. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. That's how the Apostle Paul would speak all the time. It just came natural to him. If the Lord wills, we're going to do this. God willing, we're going to do that. We're going to pursue these goals and, and, and all of these plans that we have made if the Lord permits. Now, let's be clear, there's nothing magical with those words. We should be careful not to regard them so highly that we treat the phrase, if the Lord wills, as some sort of magical incantation that has power to bring things into fruition. Now, that's, that's not what's implied here. But at the same time, let's not so lightly regard these words that we turn it into just another cliche for Christians. I think there still is much to be gained. I think there is much spiritual benefit to be had when we actually incorporate, with, incorporate some variation of these words into our vernacular, our everyday speech, especially when we are talking about our future plans and future events coming up. It's really how Christians in the past would communicate to each other all the time. If you read letters 
between Puritans in the 17th century, or if you uh, read about uh, evangelicals and the way that they would speak during the Great Awakening in the 18th century, you'd come across this popular Latin phrase they would use all the time, Deo Volente. It means God willing. And you're going to see the initials DV written often at the end of the letters of their correspondence to each other or in publications uh, on a poster, you know, announcing some upcoming event or activity. They always have the bottom DV. It was just second nature for them to include it in their speech or even as they write to say, God willing, DV. Deo Valente. It wasn't for them some kind of magical incantation. Neither was it just some, some cliche they would use. It was really an expression of faith. It was a way for them to express their humble resignation to the Lord's will. And that's really the point. It's, it's not just, it's not about a slogan. It, you know, if these, if these are just empty words, then just forget about it. I mean, what's, what's the point of that? But, but if we're intentional to incorporate this kind of language into our everyday speech, it's going to help, Lord willing, to shape our attitude towards our plans. Let's consider our attitude towards our plans. The, the more conscious I am that I can't do anything without the Lord's p- permission, apart from His will, then the more grounded I am. It undercuts that that prideful self-sufficiency that so easily uh, uh, bubbles up within me. And it leads to a humble resignation, resigning myself to the Lord's will for my life. Only if he wills will my plans come into fruition. I I need to be constantly reminded of that. And that's why I think it's a good thing to include in some variation Deo Valente, God willing, if the Lord wills, into our everyday communication. The second century church father, Tertullian, in one of his writings, he describes how a victorious Roman general would return to Rome in a triumphant procession. Everyone in the city would turn out. Uh, There would be this great fanfare, great celebration. There would be the entire army paraded in and, and a bunch of slaves would be carrying all the bounty, all the spoils of war. And in the midst of this triumphal procession, the general would enter in and he would always have a slave standing behind him, holding a crown over his head and whispering quietly, but continually into his ear, remember, you're only a man. Remember, you're only a man. The Romans, they did that because they understood the formative power of words to shape our attitude. It wasn't a slogan. It wasn't a cliche. It was a needed reminder that we are not gods. General, you might have won a mighty victory, but you are only a man. You're immortal. And so I think when we say, of some variation, God willing, if the Lord wills, if he permits, we are reminding ourselves that we are mortal. We are mere men and women. We are not lords of our lives. We are are only creatures whose fragile lives and tenuous plans wholly depend on the Lord. 
When we add, if the Lord wills, to our speech, it communicates to ourselves and to anyone listening. What it communicates is really the foundation of our plans and how it rests on God alone. It's a way to proclaim that our confidence in the face of an uncertain future rests not on our ability to accomplish the plans that we're making, but in the certainty that God can and he will always accomplish his plans. I mean, just think about our plans. What tends to thwart our best laid plans? Well, it could be a variety of things. It could be unrealistic expectations right from the start. We were just aiming too high to begin with. We lack a realistic assessment of our own abilities or of the resources at our disposal. Another factor that can commonly stifle our plans are unforeseen circumstances. Something comes out of nowhere, is throwing a wrench into all of our best laid plans. Or maybe, maybe it's unwanted opposition. For our plans to succeed, it requires everyone else's compliance. And yet they have their own plans that don't necessarily always align with ours. And so there's unwanted opposition. And then, of course, what can ruin any plan is an untimely death, especially our own. Unrealistic expectations, unforeseen circumstances, unwanted opposition, and an untimely death. These are all obstacles that can frustrate any of our plans. But this, my friends, is where Christianity offers us the best of news. Because think about it. Every one of those four obstacles tried to frustrate Christ and his plans to redeem sinners for God. But there were no expectations too high for the Son of God to handle, and there were no circumstances that he could not foresee that caught him off guard. And and yes, he was faced with opposition, but none of his opponents were unwanted. In fact, he wanted each of them, and he would have received them as friends if they were only willing. And yes, he succumbed to death, but his death was far from untimely. It occurred at just the right time, at the fullness of time, we're told in Scripture. He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Christ accomplished all of our plans, all of his plans to redeem sinners for the Lord. Not a single plan was frustrated. Not a single goal went unfulfilled. And that, my friends, is what I'm saying is the foundation, the ground of our hope. That's the foundation of our plans. Whenever we are going to say we're going to do this, we're going to do that if the, Lord's will, if the Lord wills. What we're saying is that we believe God's will is good and it's gracious because of what Jesus accomplished. So even if at times our will is not done, and even if his will is going to lead us down a path of suffering along the Calvary road, we can still count it all joy. And we can still tell him, not my will, but your will be done. That's the foundation of all of our plans. Now, as I conclude, I'd like to speak a word to those of you who are not yet Christians, who are still figuring out what you believe. I do hope that you do come away with a sober warning to take more seriously the uncertainty and the brevity and the fragility of life. You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. What is your life but a myth? Have you seriously considered these things? Perhaps many of your plans have been successful up to this point. Perhaps 
your plans to secure your future or your family's future has gone just according to plan. But what I want to know is if you've made any plans for life after death. Why would you expend so much effort making plans for this life, but to neglect to make plans for your eternal future? And I know you're probably going to say, well, that's because there's no certainty that an eternal future even exists. There's no guarantee that such plans for life after death are even certain. But isn't that always the case for all of our future plans? Nothing about your future is certain, and yet I'm sure you're making plans all the time. So I'm just pleading with you to extend that same logic and then start making plans for your life after death. And friend, you do that by turning to Jesus, asking him to be merciful to you, asking him to save you from your sins and to secure for you an eternal future when this fleeting life is over. Ask Jesus, and he will not refuse you. That's the hope and promise of the gospel. Now, to those of you who are Christians, let me remind you that one of the blessings of the gospel is knowing that your future is secure in Christ. The more you rest in that truth, the more you are released from that pressure to make sure that all of your plans come to fruition. We should be like royal children, the children of kings and queens who are just free to pursue all of their plans without any undue pressure. They don't worry about things. They don't worry about the future because even if their plan, plans fail, they know that their royal, uh, their royal future, their royal inheritance is secure. Well, I think that's just how Christians ought to feel. When we are making plans for the future, we can enjoy that same freedom to not worry. Don't worry about failed plans because your royal inheritance in Christ is secure. And we don't have to have that same sense of entitlement that's often found among royals, you know, and royal children, because we know that we're not entitled to anything. We know that we are undeserving sinners, that our entire inheritance is all of grace. So make your plans and trust them into the hands of the Lord. And just know if he wills, it will be done. But either way, you can trust that the King of Kings is your Father in heaven. Put your plans into your Father's hands. And pray for us. Father, thank you for this text, this word, this reminder, this charge for us to reevaluate the way that we think about our lives, our plans, the future, and help us to come away from this place with a realistic view of life in light of eternity and help us now, Lord, to speak and to act and behave in such a way that recognizes that our lives are in your hands and that your will is what we want to be done in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name.